newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis, and even some insight into the media issues of recent days. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, with my colleagues here, all of us in our, let's say, home studios, <laughs> whatever it may be, during the uh, continuing era of coronavirus. Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, is here. There you are, doctor. Hello, and i got to tell you, the average American during this crisis has gained five pounds. And the reason that we have all gained five pounds is because we are at home. And if we're on the telephone, it's very close to the refrigerator, and we can grab some food. Not to interrupt your medical and culinary uh, aspect, but I've lost 10 because I'm not getting newsroom donuts, which gives you... Ah, yes. The culture of the Times Union has a lot of food. So, Well, who pays uh, for that? Does the publisher pay or do you guys switch off and bring it in yourself? No, people bring in stuff. It's very nice. Everybody's very generous. And we have great newsroom potlucks that are just terrific. Mike Goodwin, <laughs> who you hear on David Costina's morning show, is a terrific cook. And so we have great potlucks. Well, more on that later. Let's introduce Judy Patrick, Vice President of the New York Press Association, a longtime editor of the Schenectady Gazette. Did Did you have potlucks at the Gazette, Judy? We did, and you're right that everybody brought things in. We used to have contests. There are great morale boosters if you have an apple pie contest or a chili contest. Sadly, though, you know, as the size of the newsrooms get smaller, the amount of food that comes in reduces Ah, as well. This is sadly one of the tragic effects of the decline of the mainstream media. And Rosemary Armeo is here. Are you just getting hungry over there, Rosemary? No, I'm eating Pop-Tarts, my latest uh... (laughs) (laughs) I would like to clarify that when we talk about people bringing in food, it's not like we work for food. Here's a a cake, write me a good story. We're talking about our colleagues, our fellow journalists bringing in food. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. In fact, I remember a time about 15 years ago when uh, a new franchisee opened up some McDonald's restaurants, and McDonald's was just introducing some of their breakfast specials. And this huge shipment of great-smelling foods, hot food, arrived in the newsroom, and we had to turn it away. It was just tragic, you know. (laughs) You know, you can't accept gifts from people who want your good coverage. So, interesting. Well, okay, we need to get to uh, real stuff. Let's start with a little definition. Let's start with the word credulous. I think that's a very terrific word. For those of you who are listening who may not use the word a lot, it's an adjective. It means having or showing too great a readiness to believe things, let's say. And you can't say that there's a word that would be more anathema to journalism than credulity. You don't want to be a credulous journalist. And so that has become a point of controversy in recent weeks as people have been saying that they have been reading headlines and reading stories that are too 
credulous. For example, in the New York Times, as President Trump was getting ready to speak and there were protests near the White House, the headline was, as chaos spreads, Trump vows to end it now. Whereas uh, in later editions, it was updated to say Trump threatens to send troops into states. So are we seeing too much credulity by the media in recent days or or um, is this a, an overreaction? How are we doing with credulity? Rosemary, why don't we start with you today? Okay. You know, I think it's a really good question. I would not have framed it in terms of that word. I've been watching a lot of television stuck at home, and you have young reporters in all kinds of riot gear and gas masks running around with the crowd. And same worries about that. I think this is getting at what we're talking about, as I did about embedding during the Iraq War. You begin to identify with the people of whom you've become part of the group. And I see some of that. Um, so they're in with it. It's all, it's all peaceful. It's all peaceful. Nothing's going on. They're they're not with the the kind of gangs and groups of people who are coming in and taking advantage of legitimate protests to do looting. I don't think we're being credulous about the government at all. I think lots and lots of skepticism is evident and is justified, but maybe towards protesters. Is that possible? What do you think, Alan? Well, the only question I have is, is credulity in the minds of the beholder. In other words, if I'm a Trumper, for want of a better word, and I see a story which I consider to be, you know, biased and liberal and this and that, then credulity becomes a different story than if I'm a liberal watching the same story. Are you following me? Yes. Actually, there have been uh, studies suggesting that there is a lot more bias in readers than there is in journalists, if you can assess such things in academic studies. But a lot of our readers disagree, you know. Judy, where are you? Especially when there are so many different tangents to a story, it's easy for a reporter, for the media, to too easily grab onto something that they think or will make a good story. In this case, I've seen a lot of maybe white supremacists are the ones who are looting, or you take what the police agencies tell you at face value and you're not. So much is happening, it's hard to determine who is doing what and what is the motivation behind and then the initial issue you raised about the headline in the New York Times, sometimes things can be correct, but not exactly true. I mean, you have to be strong enough to say, well, he says he wants to end this crisis, or, but is that really what's happening? Because if you look at what the facts, that's not what's happening at all, and the headline needs to reflect that. The thing about the white supremacy is really interesting because is it credulous of us to accept the William Barr Trump idea that it's Antifa? There's no evidence, nothing that points to them as opposed to, say, white supremacists, of which there is some information. Social media is finding that accounts supposedly run by Antifa are actually white supremacists. So maybe that's an area of, of – I think journalists really have to not believe anything right now and report it all. Exactly. There's also a question of sources. You know, somebody who's doing a newspaper article may have a different need than somebody who's got a microphone in his hand and needs live sound, if you're following me. So somebody who is in the crowd looking for somebody who will talk on air, it may be very different than a, a journalist who may be sitting either with the crowd or at the desk and calling different people. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think you're very much right, and I feel the pressure that a lot of, say, broadcast journalists are under when they're on live, and they are subsequently criticized for not asking 
the strong follow-up question for being what seems to be credulous in the face of what people are saying to them. Uh, I think it's a very difficult job to be trying to apply the journalistic standard that Rosemary rightly articulates. It's very difficult to do that as you are live, which is why we need to have really good hiring and good training of journalists so that people and have the smartest people uh, holding those microphones and cameras so that they're pressing people so that it does go beyond just reporting what is happening and goes to the why and to questioning what people say all the time. You're right. I think you make a very good point there, Rex. I think it was Rosemary, maybe it was Judy, but the point is that a lot of the people who are out there right now for CNN and the various crowds in Seattle or Los Angeles, they're very young. And the question is, uh, you know, have they had the experience that they need? They're getting it now, but have they had the experience to do that difficult follow-up question? Possibly not. That's how you get it. I think, I think well, I knocked them for being young. I think they're all doing really kind of an amazing job. And Ali Belcher is out there. He's not young. But breaking news is different than investigative reporting. They're not really there to find the why. They're doing who, what, where, and when. They're getting news. They're collecting a piece, a part of the story. I've always thought it was significant that journalists refer to their work as pieces. They're not saying it's the whole opus. It's the whole work. They're just getting some of the puzzle. In the meantime, General, not to say change the subject too much, in fact, I don't think it at all, as we speak today, has given an extraordinary angry response to the president of the United States. And he didn't want to do it. He said he was military. Military don't do this. But he thinks the Constitution is in danger. Well, there is a single adjective that is appearing in all the newspapers and on all of the electronic media, which is amazing. People are saying this is an amazing thing. Is that going too far? Sounds like an accurate description to me. I think that the uh, denunciation from the Fox opinion analysts will be strong, but it is rather remarkable, of course. So amazing, remarkable. I mean, those are all accurate terms, I'd say, for what's going on. Right. I think Mm -hmm. remarkable says it better than amazing. And I love amazing. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I I think it is Mm -hmm. amazing that he's decided to speak out and and to do that. But it is a subjective term. Yes, um, there is some of that. Uh, You know, there is a point between uh, subjectivity and just accurately describing things and being brave enough to actually give you a a straight uh, response. You know, headline writers have a very tough time. Uh, Newspaper editors get probably the most criticism, it turns out, for headlines. And writing an interesting and an accurate headline on a tight deadline, fitting it precisely to space using a certain number of characters or into in print in a certain font is very difficult. Um, and uh, a reporter may put as much context into story as possible, uh, but it has to be boiled down. And that is a, uh, a sharp skill that um, is, is hard to execute, which is why you get words that sometimes people might disagree with, like Alan, amazing. So I think you're right. There is probably room for people to to criticize. The thing about headlines is you're trying to get people to actually read the story. So the headline needs to be interesting. And a lot of times these safe headlines are incredibly boring. They're almost declaring to the world, please don't read this story. So you need a strong headline writer to grab. And in fact, a lot of people just read headlines. So they're so important. And um, I think the people who write them are true craftsmen. The toughest job and it's one of the tougher jobs in the business. And are they good? Let me ask you, Judy, are they good at crossword puzzles also? Most of them are. (laughs) 
I wanted to say that words are always important in journalism, but never more so in stories like this where there's high emotions. And I'm reminded now by this discussion of early in my career when we were covering a protest of parents at a black school in Virginia. It was a black reporter covering it, and his lead was something about parents stood around and sang, and they named the song, and then as a parenthetical expression said, the so-called black national anthem. And we got tons of criticism because we had put so-called. What do you mean so-called? And they took it as like we were criticizing whether it really was the Black National Anthem rather than this is a song also known as. And to our defense saying, well, this was a black reporter who was writing about his own community. They would say, yeah, but it was a white editor, that would be I, who put him up to it. So there's lots of emotion and suspicion and distrust on the line right now. So it is good that we're looking at every single word, amazing versus remarkable. I I applaud this conversation. You know, a lot of it goes to a tweet that came out from Dan Kennedy, a Northeastern University professor who is a longtime uh, journalist, columnist in the Boston area. He said, as I tell my students, beware of journalism that is accurate but not true. Accurate but not true. This is an interesting point. Who would like to explain what that means? Not me because I don't understand it. Rosemary, you want to explain what that means? Sure. My example is perfect. That's a song. It has a title, which we used, and it's also known as the Black National Anthem. If we had said also known as, there would have been no trouble. But the word so-called, accurately used, that's a totally perfectly good use of the word, accurate use of the one of the meanings of so-called. But it has a nuance that it's not true that anyone questions this. So there is a nuance there that was lost. And you can put together facts. You can say that the protests in America right now have been violent, okay? That's completely accurate, but it isn't the whole truth, and it doesn't give a real picture of what's going on. So it's very tricky, and there are journalists doing this on a time limit under kind of duress. They have to write in headlines, which are space limitations. So we get a lot of criticism. We make a lot of mistakes, but considering the task, we really do a good job, I think. I have a question. Since you've told the story twice now, Rosemary, what was the name of the song? I knew you were going to ask, Alan. Stop it. <laughs> Look it up. Was it, we, was it We Shall Overcome or what? That's, I'm humming it for you here, but it's something like that. I can't tell you the name. Sorry. <laughs> Best I can do is give you the melody. I'm sure that some of our listeners will be glad to join us. By the way, you can share your views with the Media Project, media at wamc.org. We're always happy to hear from you. This is the Media Project, Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. By the way, we want to say something about the loss of coverage of the pandemic and the focus on not only the killing in Minneapolis, but the subsequent riots in the streets, two different stories combined. But there has been a significant downturn in coverage, which is almost inevitable, isn't it, when there is only a certain amount of space in a newspaper or time on a newscast. We go with the immediate, but we forget pretty quickly what is really significant and that there's still an increase in cases in a number of states. And you can only imagine the amount of the more mundane stories that aren't being covered at all. I mean, even mm-hmm. important votes, important contracts being awarded, school board elections, 
my first reaction was, well, thank God Dr. Sanjay Gupta finally has a day off because he's been on CNN every day, <laughs> morning, noon, and night. And this happens at a time when, especially in New York State, things are starting to open up and there are all sorts of issues to cover, how the decisions are being made about what's opening up. And at the same time, the protests are requiring, especially the photographers in our profession, to be out there all the time. Photography is a wonderful way to capture the protest movement, and it requires them being there. It's not something they can catch up by phone afterwards. So it's really stressing everybody out, but that's the nature of news. There's a million stories in the big city every day. And you can only cover so many of them. Here's something on the other side of that. People who at the last weekend of May had Gannett papers in their homes might have been shocked because everybody else in America was reading stories about strife in the streets, about the tremendous impact of the death of George Floyd and the massive protests. But a lot of Gannett papers covered their front pages with the words, Rebuilding America. This was a combined ad sales and news initiative that was about how businesses and individuals are preparing for the reopening of the economy. And an awful lot of Gannett papers went ahead and published this on their front pages, notwithstanding the news of the day. And of course, Gannett is now the largest newspaper chain in the country. It is one of those moments where you, you know, you're struck by the business imperative, of course, to get money into the newspapers, yet it conflicts with the actual news coverage that people need at the moment, right? How do you square that? That, that is horrible. I, I did not know that until preparing for this show, and I think that's an appalling lapse in editorial judgment. I want to interject here that the song we were talking about is Lift Every Voice and Sing. Oh, yeah, Lift sure. Every mm-hmm. Voice and Sing. Lift every voice and sing. Yeah. And I would also like to note that we did not forget it because we don't care about music, black music. It's because we are old and forgetful. I forget my children's (laughs) names. So on the Gannett and the covers, we should also know that Gannett, in terms of person power, that all their reporters are on furlough. They're on rotating one-week furloughs, and so they're gone from their beats at some of the most important times in their career. This idea of setting up a front page on Friday afternoon because it gives you a chance to lay out a pretty front page and just leave one hole for breaking news, it's something that's happened because of the cuts in personnel there. And I also question the original concept of having this ad editorial partnership. I mean, that's one of the reasons probably the front pages had to go because promises were made. If the editorial department was independent of that, they could have made their own decisions if somebody was there on Saturday night to actually put the page out. Now, hasn't Gannett, you guys are Gannett watchers, I know that. Gannett has made a decision. We want to own more newspapers than anybody else, and they've invested in it. And yet, every time we turn around, we're hearing there's furloughs or there's a problem. We know that Warren Buffett decided that he wanted to buy newspapers also and then finally decided, well, that wasn't a good idea. Has Gannett made a mistake? I think Gannett's mistake was many, many years ago in taking on debt to buy more newspapers, to become a big chain with debt. And that's what a lot of newspaper chains did and found themselves unaware of the shift that was coming to the digital world, unable to service their debt. And that's why so many newsrooms have been gutted because they were gobbled up by chains that took on debt. So I think they believe that the only way to get out of this problem is by mass, by getting more numbers and supposedly more efficiencies. I don't know how they're ever going to get out of it. We do know that the Poughkeepsie Journal was a wonderful newspaper, right, Rex? We we, we all agree on that. And they've really uh, taken it apart. 
And so I don't see why people will feel more of a need to either read it online or offline or anyway if you don't have the same personnel that you, you once had. They had a wonderful editor. He's no longer there. I just think that maybe despite the fact that they're the top people in the field and that they own more newspapers than anybody else, that they've been making a series of mistakes. Still, in most communities, the newspaper newsroom is still the most vibrant and largest newsroom going in every community where there's a daily paper. So I wouldn't write off entirely. The journalism is not as strong as it was when there were more reporters. But I think the great work that's being done by newsrooms around the country ought to be credited, the financial problems notwithstanding, right? Not right, and not by me. I say that I am willing to criticize Gadette. They never did the greatest journalism in the country, even when they did have more reporters. They were always a business model, not a journalistic ideal. And that's true. They outlawed, as one example, any story that had had an anonymous source in it. Okay, good idea in theory, but when you make it an absolute, you cut yourself off from all kinds of important stories in a community. That is not my journalistic ideal. Nor mine. I'm just saying that Alan was seeming to denounce newspapers and say, why are they worth reading? No, 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 that's not fair. I I was talking about Gannett. I I wasn't saying newspapers in general. Did you hear that? Uh, Maybe you haven't heard that. Still, if I lived in Poughkeepsie, if I lived in Poughkeepsie, I would still subscribe to the Poughkeepsie Journal. If I lived in northern New Jersey, I'd still take the Bergen Record. You know, these are now Gannett papers. If I lived in Des Moines, I'd still read the uh, Des Moines Register. You know, notwithstanding the fact that they aren't what they once were, there's still a lot of great journalists plugging away. Trying to do it. Mm-hmm. I hear you. There's an interesting thing, by the way. We were talking last week about social media, and this actually goes to our earlier conversation about what it is that journalism ought to think as part of their world. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, the founder, continues to, some would say, play footsie with the White House. He says that Facebook is not the arbiter of truth, and therefore he is still going forward with a sort of hands-off approach to Donald Trump's content, even as Twitter and other platforms are being less credulous, to go back to that term. Oh, yeah. What's he doing? Is this the right decision? He is playing footsie with the White House. To what end, Rosemary? Lack of regulation and advantage from a powerful politician. Appalling. One of the New York Times columnists called Zuckerberg the uh, Susan Collins of social media in the fact that he's very concerned, but he actually doesn't ever do anything. (laughs) Susan Collins, as we speak today, Susan Collins is something like nine points behind her Senate opponent in the polls in Maine. So maybe Zuckerberg will be a few points behind. Well, it goes to the point that we were making earlier. Zuckerberg seems to believe that he has a First Amendment issue, as though he's the Congress or something. And, and he says that politicians' words, even if they're wrong or false, should be there for the world to see. And I wonder if platforms that have taken that approach ultimately are going to regret it. He has a position that he would take down posts that would incite violence, but he didn't touch the post where the president said to the effect that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I mean, that clearly was inciting violence, and he didn't touch it. I think he's worried about he doesn't want to lose all that campaign advertising dollars that flow into his coffers from right-wing advocates. So I think he's thinking about his money. He's not thinking about the public good. 
So what about the notion that you need to give a lot of air to all points of view? There's a great controversy among New York Times staffers over an op-ed written by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, which ran on the op-ed page. Again, this is apart from the news coverage, but the title of it was Send in the Troops. He called for the military to use an overwhelming show of force. And a lot of New York Times staffers are saying, this imperils our lives. This is putting black New York Times staff in danger. Was this the right call on the part of the Times op-ed editors to let this piece run? You have a thought, Rosemary? Yeah, I, I find it really interesting. I kind of side with James Bennett, the editor. I read the piece, and of course, I strenuously disagree with it. But that's what an opinion page should be. It should expose the thinking of all kinds of people, even those on the so-called other side. And I, I think this was an attempt to do that. I'm not sure if staffers were saying that it put black staffers at danger. Well, it puts all of Americans at danger if troops are out there, but that's another editorial to write. So write it and put it in the paper. But to stifle a voice because you disagree with it, I don't get that. They also said it wasn't researched. I'm not sure what I would have more thoroughly researched in Cotton. Again, I completely disagree with it. And it's an important voice. Tom Cotton is clearly going to be a Republican candidate for president in the post-Trump era. So we want to know, I think, what he says, what he thinks. If we had more such voices making thoughtful arguments on the right, we would publish them. We just don't get that much from our readers. And so our readers on the right are sometimes unhappy with us, but they ought to write thoughtful pieces for us that we can use. We'd make some use of that. Yeah, among those people complaining about this, they say that publishing it in the New York Times gives it a level of credibility that it doesn't deserve. And they also talked about the notion that they could publish an opinion about justifying rape or murder. I mean, there are some things that are just wrong. And in this case, they believe that the notion of sending the military into the streets is that wrong that it doesn't deserve to be published in the pages of the New York Times, which for many people is the top media organization in the country. Well, we'll have to let that be the end. Uh, we are out of time for this week's uh, show. Um, grateful to uh, Judy Patrick there at the end, Rosemary Romeo speaking just before her, the shrinking violet of our group, Dr. Alan Shartok. You still there, Alan? All right. He is shrinking. And I'm Rick Smith. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> And I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and thanks to you for listening this week to The Media Project. And thank you, Rex. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armay is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ah, but publishers have worries for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 